Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. How's your life? How's my life? Yeah. It's okay. Summer's good. I like summer. How's your life? <laughs> Terrible. Really? <laughs> it's just like too many things going on at once. Yeah, that's... You know? Yeah. It's like measured out in coffee spoons life. <laughs> Hey, everyone. I know I just said my life was terrible, but I'm here for you with all of my energy. And this week, before we get to our usual episode, we have a treat for you. Everybody's been talking about the new Barbie movie, and I happen to be friends with someone who knows a lot about the making of that movie and Barbie lore. So I invited her on the show to tell you all about it. This week, we are joined by the amazing Willa Paskin of Dakota Ring, uh, the smartest, I guess you would say, pop cultural criticism melange in the podcasting world. Hi, Willa. Hi, Vanessa. <laughs> that was very flattering. That was really nice. That was too nice, but I liked it. Thank you. <laughs> it's all true. You are the foremost authority in America on the movie of the year, which is Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. I could not believe how good this movie is. I thought it was going to be really stupid, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's very easy. <laughs> like, if you close your eyes and imagine a Barbie movie, it's really easy for it to be really dumb-seeming, right? Like, it's, Yeah. What yeah. do you think of when you think when you close your eyes? Just like some sort of... Like, just SpawnCon, you know, like, basically just a commercial, like, for kids. Right. Where it was all really pink and cloying, and you knew everything was going to happen. Right. I mean, I took my 11-year-old daughter to go see it. I think she had, like, a Barbie or two, but she was really into the Bratz dolls. And she used to say to me, Mommy, why don't you look like a Bratz? Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, because like, I'm not trash. Is but also just like, I mean, that's, the Bratz <laughs> dolls are their own incredible wormhole, and they live on today as LOL dolls, which my kids have. But yeah, they don't even look like people, so. No, they're they're definitely misshapen in the same way that the morphology of Barbie doesn't exist on this planet. <laughs> the Bratz definitely don't. But anyway, I took her because I just thought to myself, oh, the pain of this movie will at least be lessened if I take my child. I feel like I'm doing something good for her. And then, you know, of course— Halfway through the movie, I was like, this is maybe the most important movie for women since Tar. I think we can say. 
not for teenagers. But I take your point. I take your point. You hung out with Greta Gerwig, who is the director of this movie. And I'm assuming we're one of the first people on Earth to actually see the movie. Tell me how this all happened. Yes, that is basically what happened. Um, I was like assigned this piece by the Times magazine. It was in late May that sort of came together. But they were they really were holding on to it. You know, for film critics, there's sort of like this famous thing that happens, which is that if a movie is like a real turd, they just don't show it at all. So like right. if there's no screenings, it's a bad sign. And then obviously <laughs> if it's like a good... Is that really true? Like it'll just come out on a Friday yeah, yeah. and no critic will have seen it? Yeah, and the review comes out on Saturday and it's like terrible. That's a thing they do. And, and there's been sort of a sea change because a lot of the very big biggest movies, the Marvel movies, they don't want to show because they're really, really concerned about spoilers because while probably critics, reputable critics for publications that are reputable aren't just going to see it to tell everyone what happened in it, there is a huge audience for that. And some people who see the movies are. So they, they basically will hold it like till the Wednesday before and it comes out on Friday and everyone has to write on deadline. Got and, it. Yeah. Um, that is and what ended up happening actually with Barbie and um, Oppenheimer both. But it's weird because when a movie is as good actually as Barbie is and Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. oftentimes you're just like, oh no, like we should show it to critics early because it'll only be good word of mouth and it'll be good. But because of the nature of the frenzy around it and because of how interested people were in what was sort of in spoilers. They kind of kept it close for longer than a movie of its quality usually is, which is just a very long-winded say, a way of saying when I saw it, yes, very few people had seen it. So wait, did you get a, a screener with a watermark on it or what was the procedure to see this movie? No, the editor of the piece and I went to the production office where they were working on it. Wow. Which is like in Chelsea okay. and like watched it in a two-person like screening room. Edit Bay? Yeah, Did you no, like in a screening like... room, it had the good chairs and like the, but but like Greta was there because it's where she was working, like nervously being mm-hmm. like, the color is not going to be right. And I'm like, I promise I'm not going to be able to tell. Wow. <laughs> um, That's crazy. Yeah. She wasn't in the room with you when you no, were no, watching no, 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 it. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that would have been torture <laughs> for everybody. That's like, you know, sometimes they do for, uh, like the listening parties for new CD, for like for new records. Yes, and absolutely. Everyone has to I sit. have listened to a Bjork <laughs> album with Bjork in the the room with me. And I kept turning to her and being like, this is amazing. And she eventually was, you don't need to keep saying that. But why are you here? Like, I can't have an authentic reaction. Like, this is totally (laughs) insane. It's it's horrible for them. It's apparent. So yes, she was not in the room. So because we are the infamous podcast, we specifically want to talk about Mattel and Ruth Handler, who was the creator of Barbie, and how bananas and and scandalous she is. Can you tell us about that? Did you know about any Barbie history? No, I didn't. When I started to think about whether I could actually find the time to do the piece, I I really wanted to. Mm -hmm. I started looking into it and it just immediately did become clear there was so many good stories in the story. And one of them is that the Mattel story is a very fascinating business story, just what's happening with Mattel and has been happening with them for probably the last decade. The 2000s is a pretty incredible business story just in terms of them turning it around. Not that I'm always so happy for businesses to turn it around because some part of me is like, <laughs> I know. That's the cognitive dissonance of this whole movie. It's like, it's a great movie. Now a whole new generation of girls can play with Barbie. Yes, exactly. You know? 100%. Um, but tell us how, what Mattel, like, how did it even start? So so basically, um, Barbie's origin story, which like all business origin stories, 
has been repeated so many times that probably it's been polished right. into a massage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the story goes that this woman, Ruth Handler, who was a Jewish businesswoman who had started Mattel with her husband, a man named Elliot Handler. It's actually named after Elliot and this short-term business partner they had whose first name was Matt. So it was Matt mm-hmm. and L. They had a toy company that started in 1945. They started out of their, you know, their garage like all uh, California companies are meant to. And they were doing pretty well. They made a bunch of music toys, like a Mickey Mouse guitar. And she overheard her daughter, whose name is Barbara, but she was Barbie, the first Barbie, playing Mm -hmm. with paper dolls with her friends and sort of realized as she was listening to them that there was no three-dimensional doll that girls could do the same way. There was only baby dolls. Like, that was the only kind of really popular doll market. So she... It's like we should make we should make a doll that looks like a person, like a grown up for <laughs> for girls. And everyone was like, I don't know. And then she basically goes on a family vacation to Switzerland and comes across this doll called the Build Lily, which is essentially like basically like a sex doll for grown up men. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what? what it is, like a pinup doll. But it's it, a tiny, tiny pinup doll. Yeah, like it's literally looks incredibly like Barbie. Like Barbie, they ended up settling with them after Barbie went for sale. But they basically took took what it looked like. Blonde, like that's her proportions and stuff. She was like a a character in a cartoon strip. But for grownups, it was like a sexy doll for men. Oh, my God. (laughs) So weird. So she's like, let's bring it back to California from Germany and sell it to children? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I think basically (laughs) she slid right past this. She was just like, this is sort of proof of concept. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. We could make a doll and it could be this size, you know. And also, I think there ended up being quite a bit of um, manufacturing hurdles with plastic molding, like how to get their fingers made. Just stuff like that in the <laughs> they early have those weird fingers yeah and there was like and, and it was quite they had someone who is another total character who actually like ran a sex dungeon who's like the guy who actually designed um, <laughs> the barbie doll and like has all these patents for like, its joints and stuff it's like a, a lot of stuff like that i think basically it was important to say like we could do it almost not just like this is we could do it theoretically this is what it theoretically could look like but literally physically here's an example we could sort of figure out how to make it but that obviously sort of is like the whole thing in a nutshell right it's like from the very beginning barbie is both this like sex toy for men and this like aspirational object for little girls and like both things have always been true but i love that ruth was sort of running the business right yeah like with her yeah. husband but you you have the sense that she was actually you know she was she was the businesswoman and she was the one who made this all happen and i mean that's pretty weird for a woman in 1959 right totally i mean i think they were very well married is my sense they were together for a long time and i think they were good collaborators right. mm-hmm. but yeah totally she was running a company I also didn't know that Barbie is the name of, well, her daughter's name, Barbara, and then her son is named Ken. I mean, that's sort of strange. Yes, They're named it after is. her. It is a little bit. I think it was, I think it was like a little fraught for both of them, actually. Oh, <laughs> I can in the only fullness imagine. Of time. Yeah, totally. Um, but yes. And yes. then so later on, you know, she, I guess, takes Mattel to all sorts of heights and makes herself a ton of money. And then she like defrauds her own company. Well, <laughs> this is all like very fuzzy. But basically, she had breast cancer. And so, again, the narrative around this is that in the early 70s, when she first had breast cancer, she sort of was not running the company day to day. 
And in that period, they started to have some financial troubles. Basically, they just sort of covered up the extent of the financial troubles. They kind of like cooked the books a bit and they ended right. up running afoul of the SEC. And it's it's one of those things where, like, she did end up having to do community service, but she never had to say she was guilty. Like, she did not plead guilty. So she didn't go to prison. She just had to do a lot of community and service. And it's not that she didn't do something, she, she, you know, but, like, it right. maybe, yeah. maybe it wasn't just her. Like, it, was, it sounds like it was a lot of, you know, there was a bunch of people involved. But, yes, they did get pushed out of the company. But, you know, they it's like a it's any company that's been around for as long as Mattel has will have these ups and downs. And also, I mean, that is the thing about the doll, too, is it's so incredibly rare for a doll to be a going concern for like 10 years or 20 years, let alone 60 right. years. Like it's not right. It's not done. Yeah. Like it's not it's an important. Common. It's an important doll. <laughs> yeah, but like it's just like like there isn't some other doll from like when our parents were children. When our parents were children, actually, Barbie didn't exist. But you know, there's not some other doll from 1959 that we still play. No, with, you know, absolutely. This is the doll. I mean, I thought it was amazing though that you write in like 2015. There, you know, that's like the nadir of Barbie sales, right? Yeah. And this idea that they had done some market research or something, and like. Mothers were saying they didn't feel comfortable giving Barbie dolls at birthday parties. Like they thought that said something bad about themselves. Oh, yeah. So it's well known that Mattel was on very hard times at that point. And actually, I think sort of because of what's happened since and the change in leadership, they're very sort of open about talking about that moment as this pivotal point in a way that you could imagine a company might not be if it wasn't like part of their new narrative. But I talked to a bunch of people at Mattel and yes, like the birthday party anecdote was from one of them. I mean, they're constantly doing market research. They're constantly testing the doll. And this really like, it seems so obvious that it like stood out to her. Yeah. Moms like don't want to be associated with what Barbie stands for. Like that is a red flag for them. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely a red flag. I mean, the so so basically, can you describe what that early one with like the black and white bathing suit looked like? What did that original Barbie look like and how did it morph? The first ever Barbie came out in 1959 and she's Mm -hmm. blonde and she actually has bangs and like a ponytail and she's wearing this black and white striped. I tried to describe it as zebra and Mattel <laughs> corrected us like from fact checking oh. that it was mm. chevron. It's alternating lines. Stripes. Of, yes. Okay. It's, uh, that are sort Ugh. of slanted towards the oh, center God. like on a diagonal. Okay. Uh-huh. And it's like a bathing suit and she has hoop earrings and sunglasses and high heels. And that was the first one. It was like the teen fashion model. But one of the early key Barbie Mattel employees was this woman, Charlotte Johnson, who designed all the outfits that lived in Japan for a year to because that's what was in production to make it. Amazing. And I mean, the story of Barbie's clothes is like 100% the story of fast fashion, which is just to say these early clothes like had miniature zippers and snaps, just like impeccable, perfect. And now they're just like literally, I mean, like a piece of polyester, you know, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And so over the years, until sort of the recent Makeover, the doll has changed. Like she had her eyes had been downcast. And in the early 70s, like along with feminism, she started to look out like she mm, looked at, you know. And, got it, got it, got it. Okay. And there have been some changes like that. And then and, and it, starting in the early 1980s, they introduced a black Barbie and an Asian Barbie and a Hispanic Barbie. But they sort of were the secondary Barbies. There had also earlier been, there used to be other Barbie characters, some of which are in the movie. Now there's just Barbies and Kens. But, and there's also Why Skipper. is there never a baby Barbie? Why does she never have a baby? Basically, they decided they Ruth Handler didn't want to do it. But I don't know. It's just baked in now. Barbie right. just doesn't have a baby. That's not Barbie's <laughs> thing. 
basically, they come up with this idea that I guess they get new CEOs and blah, 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 blah. Okay, so they make a bunch of different skin colors, right, which is obvious. They had to do that. It was 1980 before Mattel released the first black and Latina dolls actually named Barbie. And in 2016, three new body types were introduced, curvy, petite, and tall. And then they come up with this idea, like, we should have a movie. Like, Barbie is IP. Well, I think that with both of those ideas, those ideas have been around, I think, for a long time. There's a very Mm -hmm. good Hulu documentary about the 2015-2016 sort of remaking of Barbie, like with the different skin tones and hair colors mm-hmm. and facial shapes and also body sizes. And yeah. it, and they mentioned in that that like this is not the first time they were like, we could do that, right? It's just the first yeah, time yeah, they yeah. were threatened enough that they had to do it. And the movie is not totally dissimilar. There had been a movie in the works since 2009. And, you know, it's possible they've been talking about it for much longer. The IP stuff is so, so, so all around us that, like, it's not possible that they didn't consider it. I mean, they're pretty, they're, the whole, I mean, the whole thing that's interesting about the movie and its success is, like, also, though, that they're extremely late, right? Like, they are right. late to this game. Like, Hasbro, I mean, there's honestly, what are there, like, eight Transformers movies? Like, I don't right. like, you know, like, they're late <laughs> yeah. here. They have been late, but, like, caught up, like, not, you know, have announced themselves with a splash. Although we can talk about it. I don't know how well it's going to work for them going forward. But needless to say. Hot Pockets. Yeah, I don't yeah. think Hot Pockets is, like, uh, Polly Pocket. Polly Pocket. Polly Pocket, oh, Polly Pocket and Pocket Hot Wheels. Wheels. Sorry. Hot uh, Wheels, those. Polly Pocket, whatever. Hot Wheels could do something. My son would love to watch some Hot Wheels movie. So, so then they get Greta Gerwig, and then they get this incredible movie that is, like, so smart in so many ways and and weird and funny and makes fun of the doll. So you see the movie and do you think to yourself, oh my God, this is the most massive hit ever? Or did you not? No, I thought something like, oh, that was like good. Like, do you know what I mean? I was like, I liked that. Like, it seems to do everything it's supposed to do. The editor I was with, she liked that. And then it's actually just the funny thing where you're like, we think that was good. That was good. Are we right? Do we know if it's good? Like, it seemed good. You know, because also, this is, as you said, like, the cognitive dissonance of something like this is, like, we thought it was good. But also, it is just such a weird undertaking in this way because it is to sell Barbie. And also, there was this funny thing that was happening just simultaneously, which was that for, like, a month, a couple weeks after I'd seen it, everyone was just, like, seemed so amped about it still. And then Mm -hmm. it sort of started to micro turn. I mean, this is just like one of those things you could just tell if you're like on the internet, on Twitter too much or on, <laughs> which is people right. started to just be like, I am feeling force fed the publicity for this because it right. was so, so yeah. everywhere. And it's just started to feel like, oh, right. Like this is actually a lot. Like you, it is inescapable. And if it had right. been anything but extremely good, you know, like people, I think it was starting to the point that some people were starting to be like, Okay, I'd be happy for this to be bad now, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, like, I mean, you say this on the daily, but I went on Google. There's pink sparkles for Barbie. For Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling and Greta Gerwig. All of their names (laughs) do it. I mean, but that's actually one of the things that's really interesting about it is that, and it's true in the media, too, and this is why it was everywhere, which is that Barbie has something like 98% recognition across the world and Mm -hmm. it's run by a huge company that has their shit together basically and so in this very very fragmented cultural universe that is something that everybody wants a piece of so there's a way that it was like a no-brainer for all of these 
people to sign these licensing deals and marketing agreements with Mattel. And we all need something that people care a lot about. And you can see the amount of interest in it begets more interest because it's just, well, everybody knows what this thing is. It's like a rising tide. No, no, no. Totally. And everybody feels like they have to go see this movie because everybody else has seen the movie. So what do you think happens? Like, obviously, it's going to make billions of dollars. But like, do you think that there's a long tail and it wins the Oscar? Or do you think the uh, this is just like one of those American feverish summer things where people are just think about this thing all the time for a couple of weeks and then they're like, oh, what was that? Now well, I'm back to school. Yeah, I mean, I obviously have no idea. But I think all of those <laughs> things, I actually think all of those things will happen. Like, I think... It will be like a long, feverish summer of it, which is yeah. irregular for a movie. I think it will win some Oscars. I don't know that it's going to win Best Picture because like Oppenheimer might, but I think Greta Gerwig definitely could win Best Director and it'll probably win for whatever screenplay awards up for. You know what I mean? And and it'll be nominated for a bunch of stuff because it is going to make a billion dollars, which is like insane for a comedy, basically. And then I actually think it just... I said this in the piece and I mean it like this to me is just such obviously, among other things, just like such a slumber party movie. Like, right. For sure. Like you're just like yeah. kids. Are, like it is, you know, like 13 mm-hmm. year olds are going to be watching it for a long, long, long time. So is there a sequel and what happens in it? I have no idea what happens in it. I mean, I think the pressure for there to be a sequel is exorbitant. And right. I'm sure they want one to exist. And I would guess that there will be one. I don't know who will be involved. You know what I mean? The last line in that movie is so great. The last sequence of that movie is inc- is so good. She's going to become a real girl. I mean, she has a vagina. Yeah. It's like such a great <laughs> joke. And so I don't know where they go from there. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> How can you be Barbie if you have that piece of anatomy? It's true. That's the whole that is the er thing about Barbies. But the whole thing they did is like no one else would have dreamed that up. So they could come up with something else. Thank you so much. Well, you can hear Willa Paskin on Decoder Ring, um, which is an amazing podcast that's been running for forever. Thank you so much, Willa. Thank you. We'll be back after a break with a story not about dolls, but about the people who usually play with dolls. I'm talking about children. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. 
Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Bellisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So there's this school in New York City. It's a really fancy private school where tuition costs tens of thousands of dollars a year. And the kids, they have a lot of power. They just pick on us because they can, because no one says not to. That's one of the teachers. You see, at this school, there's sort of a reverse power dynamic, very different than you would expect. The teachers are scared of the students. And if you try to fail them, between your laptop and the office, an F becomes a C. And a C becomes valedictorian and a top spot at the Ivy of their choice. Because when the students happen to be the kids of some of the most powerful people in America, teachers can quickly become pawns. The school has always been a breeding ground for the worst kinds of people. Is it really their fault they inherited power and influence the minute they were born without any examples of how not to abuse it? The teachers you're hearing from are from HBO's Gossip Girl reboot. But the story we're about to tell you is real life. And as it turns out, Gossip Girl wasn't too far from the truth when it comes to life behind the walls of elite private schools. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Vanessa Grigoriadis. I'm Gabe Sherman. And this is Infamous. If you think about the sorts of elite private schools that are out there, well, there's essentially two kinds. There's the dead poet society kind, where teachers inspire and shape even the most cynical students. Thoreau said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Don't be resigned to that. Break out. And there's the gossip girl kind, where the cynicism of money and elitism corrupts the education. And this story is about a kerfuffle that happened at one of those gossip girl schools, a school named Horace Mann. It's in the Bronx, about 10 miles north of Times Square, and about 15 years ago, teachers, students, the administration, and the school board all locked horns. The dispute was about a social media scandal and a book called Academy X. And it all resulted in the resignation of some teachers. And it showed who holds the real power in elite education. Now, Horace Mann is not just any prep school. It's one of the premier prep schools in New York City, which you know means that they take themselves very seriously. Horace Mann kids go on to Ivy League universities, and then they go on to run the worlds of finance and business and media and politics. I mean, these are the Nepo babies of tomorrow. So what happens at this high school matters. So Gabe, have you seen Gossip Girl? I mean, is that a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> I work in media. I'm, I live in New York. Come on. <laughs> so what did you think about it? I thought it was compulsively watchable because this is a world that, you know, is very secretive and rarefied and we get glimpses of. But to live in it was 
kind of enjoyable and also horrifying. The town cars, the black town cars dropping kids off at their private The spring schools. break in St. Bart's, Sam- summers in the Hamptons. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Just being raised by the English nanny because your parents are too busy going to special events and their board meetings. And so I, I'm fascinated by the adults and the children on Gossip Girl and their relationships and the way they're like, you know. Well, the kids are like mini adults, right? Yeah. So there's all these dynamics, right? In a in a private school, there's the there's obviously the parents who are paying the bill and then there's their children who are you know apples of their eye, and then there's also the administration who serves at the pleasure of the board, right? So the story I want to tell you is about that relationship. What do I think of when I hear the words Horace Man? I think of openness to learning. I think of a warm, supportive environment. I think of great teachers. Lots of characters. You get off the one train and there's like bodegas and little restaurants there. Right. And it's, I mean, it's the Bronx. And and then you go up the hill and you're in like these beautiful like Tudor and Victorian houses. And it just feels like when you're there, you're sealed off from the rest of reality. Right. Which I think feeds on this idea that when you're there, you live in this world where the rules don't apply. I believe in a bright future for my kids because of Horace Mann. I believe in equal opportunity and empowerment. I believe in diplomacy and compromise. I believe in precision and focus. I believe in having fun. One thing I like to think of it is it's like the um, the junior division of the New York elite, right? You have like Puff Daddy's kids went there, but then you also have like investment bankers' children's and white shoe law firms' children. So mm-hmm. you have this like uh, agglomeration of like the culture and media and entertainment elite and then the financial elite. And mm-hmm. so when you go there, you really come out of there from the kids I've met thinking that like, you know, you run the world. Right. I mean, I, I I was talking to another friend of mine who has a kid at one of these schools, and I was like, Are, is this school, like, is it actually diverse now? And he was like, yeah, it's pretty diverse. I mean, there are people there whose hedge funds aren't doing that well. <laughs> Don't think that was our measure of diversity. <laughs> yeah. Horace Mann used to be a very different kind of place, much more dead poet society than Gossip Girl. I mean, Jack Kerouac and William Carlos Williams went there but over the years became more and more about money and power and privileged bratty students running amok. Let me take you back to the mid-aughts. Low-rise jeans were in. Gnarl Sparkly's song Crazy was nonstop on the radio. And Facebook was this cool, exclusive new thing that you could only join with a school email address. And that's when Gabe caught wind of a wild story. I'm at lunch at Michael's, which in the mid-2000s was like the media cafeteria for Condé Nast and all the big midtown media companies. And I was gossiping with someone over lunch, and they said, you know, by the way, there's this incredible scandal happening at the Horace Mann School where all these rich kids created these racist Facebook pages and misogynistic pages, and they were posting like the most insane things on the internet. And when the teachers found out about it, the teachers got in trouble, not the kids. And I was oh like, God. all right, well, that, like, even if half of that is true, that's a story. Right. So I start reporting and I find out that there's a teacher named Peter Sheehy, who's mm-hmm. a history teacher, who is married to the former Us Weekly editor, Janice Min. Amazing. And um, already I know this is going to be a good story. Mm-hmm. And so I start talking to people in the Horace Mann world. And as these people start to lay out, what happened was that one morning at the start of the school year in 2006, Peter's at home 
just, you know, kind of getting caught up before the school year starts. So he logs into Facebook and he clicks around and he discovers that there's these Facebook clubs, like one's called the Men's Issues Club. And on these pages, kids just post the most obscene, racist and misogynist. Oh, no. And kids on it were the sons and daughters of both trustees and, you know, prominent members of New York's power elite. And one club member referred to an English teacher as a crazy-ass bitch and a French teacher as an acid casualty. Another boy boasted that he's the only person here who actually beats women when he's drunk. No joke. Oh, my God. That's a direct quote. Oh, my God. And another one bragged that he had banged a teacher in the music department bathroom and will get a great college wreck for the accomplishment. Men need to have a voice. We aren't meant to be seen and not heard. Let freedom ring, bitches. Oh, shit. So, oh, my God. <laughs> so Peter is in his bedroom at home scrolling this and he's horrified what, what he sees. And then he finds another club called McGuire Survivors. And it's another student Facebook group dedicated to his colleague, Daniel mm-hmm. McGuire, who's a 33-year-old history teacher. One kid refers to Daniel McGuire as, quote, the official minority rights officer and head of protection for feminist society. And McGuire is, quote, the representative of oppressed Indians of America. So Peter finds out about these things and he's like, holy shit, these are really rich and powerful kids who created these disgusting pages. Mm -hmm. And he does what any normal thinking person would do is he reports it to his superiors. At Harzman. At Harzman, yeah. yeah. So Peter reports it to the headmaster. Okay, I'm just going to jump in here for a second to let you know that the headmaster of Horseman was a guy named Tom Kelly. Now, he wasn't just hired because of his background in education. I think it also helped that in the past he'd run a huge construction project while he was the head of the Westchester School District. Harzman was expanding, and the board wanted somebody who could see that construction through. I think this is really important to understand why somebody like Thomas Kelly, who was the Horseman headmaster, got the job. The search committee had looked at other private school headmasters, and I think the board wanted somebody like Thomas Kelly, who is not of the private school world, who would maybe be a little more starry-eyed about getting invited into this club and would be more, you know, at the bidding of the board. I think, you know, there's always this tension when you're the headmaster of a school of, are you in charge or are you just serving at the pleasure of the board? But they don't want somebody too autonomous, right? right? I mean, it just seems like they wanted somebody who would pose no threat to them whatsoever. Right. Would be, you know, just happy to be there. Like the kind of guy that's just like feels lucky to have the job. Mm-hmm. And this is what I find the most disgusting part of the entire story. Rewinding the previous year, the head of Horace Mann's technology department held a seminar for all of the faculty. And he basically said, you guys need to be aware of what's happening on social media. Like nothing that gets posted on the internet is private. Like here's how you can monitor Facebook groups. And he showed them how you can log in using like your middle name and your Horace Mann email address. Because mm-hmm. back then, if we remember, Facebook was like only for students. Right. So this was sanctioned by the school. They showed, they literally showed teachers how to snoop on Facebook. So oh my God. Peter Shee is doing exactly what the school has advised them to do. So a few days after finding out about these clubs, Peter calls Tom Kelly, the head of the school. And so Tom Kelly calls an emergency meeting after school that's attended by the faculty, basically like the grievance committee, which is like the teachers that are meant to deal with student issues. And within hours of this meeting, several of the children of board members are mysteriously taken off the club's pages. Like somebody had tipped them off. 
And so, like, yeah. the really powerful kids suddenly are, like, erased. And I, I don't know if they took screenshots, but, like, they were clearly starting the cover-up. Then, all of a sudden, the headmaster calls Peter Sheehy into a meeting and says, I'm getting a lot of pressure. The board thinks you guys overreached and were spying on the kids, and that's fucked up. Right. As Peter's processing this, he finds out that a kid has written a letter to the student newspaper, basically saying... This is also fucked up that the teachers were spying. And suddenly it seems like there's this political campaign from the board and also students who are trying to, like, change the narrative and make right. this a debate about free speech rather than, like, the substance of racism and misogyny. And this is where Andrew Trees' book comes into play. So Andrew Trees was a teacher at the school. And his novel would end up becoming ammunition for the students and for the parents who were embroiled in the Facebook scandal. That's after the break. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. Rocketmoney.com infamous. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. This is Infamous from Campside Media. Before this whole thing happened with the Facebook groups and the teachers supposedly spying on the kids, there'd been a different free speech debate on campus. And it was all about a book this teacher, Andrew Trees, wrote. Andrew Trees is a teacher at the Horace Mann School and, like both of us, is fascinated and, you know, a little horrified by the culture of excess and extreme wealth. And so he decides to write a satirical novel about a New York City private school called Academy X. And the book publisher and its like infinite wisdom of marketing decided to like sell this book as a New York City private school teacher was going to like blow the whistle on what it's really like. Mm. And so then, you know, he had to tell Horace Mann that he was writing this book. And suddenly the board is like, wait a minute, you're a teacher at our school and you're writing a tell-all, even if it's, quote, fiction about the school. 
one of our producers wrote a yeah. recap of the, the novel. Okay. It's a shitty English teacher who's trying to keep his head low at the end of the year. And he's sort of attracted to the 16-year-old rich girl in his class who is bright, but she's not the brightest in the class. That's another girl. And that girl hates the rich girl. But there's basically, like, there's an essay contest, and both girls are up for it. And then, you know, there's a plagiarism scandal. And one of these hot girls tries to seduce the teacher. Part of me reading this was like, I don't know if this guy should not have gotten into trouble for this. Yeah. I mean, there is stuff in this book where he's like talking about, you know, creamy shoulders and stuff like that, where you're like, wow, OK, you're looking at that girl. You know, she's got a very skimpy outfit on. Yeah. So so basically there is this teacher. He's written this book. The board is sort of pissed about it. But the administration is standing behind him. Right. Like the headmaster who we were just talking about. He's. He's like, no, you know what? This mm-hmm. is a fictional book. I'll stand behind this guy. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not sure why. Do mm-hmm. you know why? I mean, I think the idea was like, A, I don't think the book sold very well. So right. the idea was that it's going to blow over. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes these scandals take like firing him might actually give more oxygen to it than just ignoring it. So I did get a tape of one meeting where the headmaster, Tom Kelly, is meeting with Andrew Trees, basically saying, I don't think the book is that big of a deal. It's satire. It's fair game. I, I do believe most of the administrators understand that. You know, we're such an intellectual population. It's not legal or illegal, but does it speak to a mature, respectful climate? Does it speak to life of the mind? Tom says, well, I'm just trying to referee there. And I said to the board, guys, take a deep breath. You know what? If after you read the book, you're really in a panic, come on up, we'll talk. The kids were, were pretty pretty aware of the fact it's satire, and it is what it is. Um, other kid feedback, no one's come to me, no one's said anything. My number one battle cry, particularly to the administrative structure, has been to remind them, you are an employee. And Kelly even joked to the board, he said that he had toyed with the idea of writing a tell-all himself. Tom Kelly says, you know, they're nervous about me because I joked with one of them. And I said, what are you kidding me? I got only two years left on my contract here. I'll do Academy X uncensored. And they're like, that's not funny. We'll hear from uh, from New York York Times right away. Um, We'll hear from the Wall Street Journal right away. And someone says, Tom, what if you get hijacked in the media? Tom, if you get... Hijacked by the media, I said, look, my response to Larry on Larry King Live is, I, mean, I just got here. I'm trying to clean the shit up. Our response within the walls is going to be, why would the hardhead school offer comment on a novel? We don't do book reviews. One kid in the building has an advanced reader's copy. And I was surprised. I heard one of three kids had said, you know, Dr. Kelly, um, I've actually seen the cover. And I said, no, that's not mine. So one family must be in the publishing business that has it. You, you think these guys are either they're erudite yeah. or they're apparatchik, he just sounds like they're a, not this. He sounds like a boob. I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's he really like, sounds like some sort of like sort of middle management yeah. dude who Which just like, like runs, so, a, runs, runs like a car dealership. Yeah, exactly. Like a used car salesman. I mean, it really is to me so it's just like fascinating that the board would want this guy to be the headmaster of Horace Mann. So basically, as the scandal unfolds, the kids start to say, well, wait a minute, why can a teacher write creepy things about us and write a novel and profit off of a book about our school? 
but we can't say racist and sexist things in private on Facebook. I mean, that's the crux of the debate. It's <laughs> such a weird, like, argument. Yeah. But okay. But uh, I mean, there is a privacy. There probably is a privacy issue there. And there, yeah. you know, there is, I guess, a First Amendment issue. But, I mean, that's not... Or do you think there is? Or? No, I mean, I just like the idea that yeah, that's a hill you want to die on. You want to defend your right to say racist and misogynistic things. I mean, it, again, I'm struck by when I look back at this story, just at how rapidly campus politics have changed. But it did become a debate about free speech because of this book that was written. And so Tom Kelly, the headmaster, calls a whole school assembly and he says, listen, like, let's just like dial the temperature down and we need to have a debate about free speech and appropriate speech, and let's just, you know, start a dialogue. But that assembly didn't cool things down. In fact, it ended up doing the opposite. And just an FYI, we reached out to Tom Kelly for comment, but did not hear back. More after the break. This is Infamous from Campside Media. Two Horace Mann teachers, Peter Sheehy and Daniel McGuire, told the administration about some Facebook groups that targeted teachers on campus with racist and misogynistic posts. Almost immediately, the administration faced this intense pressure from the Board of Trustees. And some of the board members were parents of students in those Facebook groups. They wanted the teachers punished for spying. The headmaster, Tom Kelly, he called an assembly to cool things down. But while Kelly addressed students, board members also held a meeting just across campus. As Peter Sheehy and Daniel McGuire are leaving this assembly, they're walking out on the quad on campus and they're accosted by a board member whose daughter had formed the anti-Danielle McGuire Club. And this woman, she's wearing alligator sunglasses and says, you know, you two, you logged into Facebook under a false name. And then Danielle says, well, I had a right to defend myself against defamation. And then this woman in the alligator sunglasses says, well, students are just blowing off steam. They're very stressed. It's not unusual for them to say racist and sexist things. The site is private. And Danielle says, you got to be kidding me. Facebook's not private. At the time, it had 9 million users. <laughs> right. And what? And then, <laughs> incredulously, the Alligator Sunglass board member says, well, what you did was like breaking into my daughter's room and reading her diary. And Danielle snaps back, no, what your daughter did was the equivalent of posting something in Times Square. The head of the history department sees this altercation. He walks over to try to, like, defuse the situation. An Alligator Sunglass board member says that McGuire is totally out of control and alleges that Danielle called the kid a Nazi in class. Oh, my God. So now suddenly yeah. da- Danielle McGuire is being investigated for anti-Semitism. Oh, Jesus Christ. Which, what a shit show. Which yeah. creates even more of a shit show because, as Danielle told me at the time, she had been a seeker mm-hmm. a lot of her life and has actually converted to Judaism and married a Jewish doctor. Wow, okay. But now suddenly she's the anti-Semite. Right, right, right. And she's like not even feeling safe to come to school anymore. And now there's a rumor she hears that they're claiming that there's a tape of her saying this. And she basically says to the school, like, either produce the tape or not, but I'm not coming back. Yeah. And, of course, there is no such tape. And the whole thing was bullshit. But she had basically, the kids 
had marshaled both the newspaper, the board, and their parents to make this teacher feel completely bullied and unsafe on campus. So in November of that school year, the school clears Danielle McGuire of making any anti-Semitic remarks. And then the kids are finally punished. The creator of the Men's Issue Club, the one who said, where do women belong, quote, in the kitchen? Well, that kid withdrew from the school. But the rest of the kids on the Facebook club, only two of them served a one-day suspension. And the rest, oh, were just, the rest were just asked to apologize. Oh, my God. The tragedy at the end of this entire story is that all three of those teachers, Andrew Trees, Peter Sheehy, and Daniel McGuire, left the school. So <laughs> the kids all thrived, and the teachers that tried to bring all of this you know, ugliness to light were the ones who were forced out. The thing I found, you know, sort of heartbreaking is Peter Sheehy loses his job. So, like, what's that all about? Yeah, I mean... That to me was the, that was very heartbreaking because he, you know, by all accounts loved the school. His students loved him. Um, And, you know, you know, his wife was very financially successful and clearly he was doing this job not for the money, but because he loved teaching. Right. And so I just, I think it's, it's a tragedy that power and influence can warp a school's values where a beloved teacher is the one who has to leave because a bunch of bratty kids, like, you know, they're being kids and all of the so teachers, who, yeah. all the teachers who looked at these clubs were punished for spying on the kids rather than actually judging the content of the clubs themselves. It's so weird. Why did they do that? The kids who created these, these clubs or who are on them were, their parents were on the board. And if you're a board member, you're like, holy shit, this will like blow up my entire kid's future if, you know, this ends up in New York Magazine. So right. they, they almost overreacted. I think... If they had just quietly like disciplined the kids, it wouldn't have been a scandal. But that's right, what happens. Right, right. It's like right. when your values are that warped, mm-hmm. you make decisions that end up blowing up. Right. So I went to one of these schools. You know, I actually went to a, a public school until ninth grade. And then I transferred into Dalton, which is like. <laughs> so tell me about that ninth grade when you parachute oh my in. God. It was so bad. I have to say, I mean, there's nothing that has more made me the person that I am today than going to Dalton. And I that is that is to say, like the horrible parts of me are, you know, I attached to that school. I went in there at 13 years old and I was sort of goth, right? Like I used to use like white powder to make my face whiter and then black eyeliner and make like a cross at the end. And, you know, I walked into this place where like all the girls had like straightened sort of highlighted hair and, you know, ripped jeans and like a blazer. And I was just like, I don't even know what this what is this look? Like, I don't even know where you get these clothes. I really didn't fit in at Dalton. You cannot be popular at Dalton if you're not rich. Period. Mm-hmm. There's like, there, there's nothing else to even discuss. Mm-hmm. We're talking like triplex on Park Avenue. Private jet rich. Yeah, like private jet. Everything was outrageous, right? And huge and flashy and, you know, has really only gotten worse. I think the school is a microcosm for how New York City has changed, right? Starting in the 80s and then accelerating in the 90s and in the aughts. You had just this flood of new money coming into the city, whether it was Wall Street law firms, tech companies, private equity. Mm-hmm. You had people suddenly who were completely anonymous, but they thought, well, if I'm super rich, my kids should go to Horace Mann. Historically, Horace Mann was a place where you had like very prominent Jewish families would send their children. And now you had 
basically the only ticket to entry was whether you had money. That was the major change. If you were a rich person and you sent your kid to a boarding school, there was like the rough assumption that these teachers were there to whip the kids into shape, right? But because of like so many millionaires were minted in the 80s and 90s and aughts, they thought they could buy their kids into the Ivy League. And so the teachers ended up feeling like the hired help. And then as people, you know, gathered more wealth, like the college admissions got more and more competitive, right? Because there were so many more people who wanted to get into this very selective group of colleges. Yeah, I mean, it just creates this kind of Darwinian struggle where parents think, well, if my kid gets to Horace Mann and I donate money to the board and they get, you know, the right relationships with the college counselors, it really becomes like a pay-for-play system. I mean, part of the arms race, right, around college admissions is around having the best science lab, the Mm -hmm. best sports fields, the best theater and drama department. And so schools like Horace Mann have spent hundreds of millions of dollars to build these campuses that would be better than most college campuses. And to do that, they require, you know, huge donations from their board, which gives even more power to the random white shoe lawyer who, you know, his kid might be a fuck up, but has $10 million to donate. And I do think there are some ways in which you could see the students sort of losing out, right? Mm -hmm. They're sort of being pressured too hard by their parents to be, you know, adults at a time Mm -hmm. when they're really just youngsters and they're, yeah, they're bratty kids, but they are also just kids, Mm -hmm. right? And they're sort of being expected to perform at a really high level. And I think it's, you know, they are private schools, but ultimately they are accountable to the values of right and wrong. The thing is, even if they're just kids, their parents are not just ordinary parents. They're some of the most powerful people in America. And that's what makes this story so revealing. Because even though it's about one school in one city, it's really about how the world works. Because Horace Mann doesn't just teach Latin or political philosophy or any of the wonderful things advertised on its website. The story's lesson is that those with power, like these kids and these parents, can get away with almost anything. And those without power are left to pick up the pieces. Hi, everyone. Before we go this week, I just want to say thank you to all of you for listening to Infamous. We hope you're loving the show as much as we love making it, and we want to hear from you. So we have a survey up. It's at infamous.fans. Yes, that's infamous.fans, not .com. And you can answer a few questions there. It's a little long, to be fair, but your feedback goes a long way, and we are so excited to hear what you think. It'll really help us picking the kinds of stories and topics that you want on the podcast in the future. And again, thank you so much for being here. It um, is really so essential, obviously, to us keeping this show going. So um, many, many, many happy returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.